0: Good morning, morning. appreciate you all being here today, as Brother Sean said, I know it's treacherous conditions out there in some places, we appreciate you, we appreciate all our visitors being here this morning as well, hope some of the things that we talk about will be beneficial to us as Christians this morning. You didn't miss the election, I'm not talking about the one you're thinking about, there wasn't an election for this office, you didn't opt in, you were included by default, If it feels like you don't have a say in the matter, well, it's because you really don't have one. The news is good, but you might not like what you hear. It may come as some surprise to you to hear that you live under a monarchy. Now, you may say, me, a red, white, and blue-blooded American, I think we had something to say about that 200 years ago. We don't live under a monarchy anymore, but no earthly war can affect the dynasty that we are talking about this morning. If it sounds authoritarian, then you're probably starting to understand it a little bit better. But we have no choice because the gospel has already spoken. And the bottom line is is one truth that must be proclaimed from the pulpit, in the town square, in the rooftops, in our homes, to everyone that we know, until all creation has been informed of the truth that Jesus Christ is king of the world. If we played a word association game, which can be fun at times... There's lots of titles you might associate with the name Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is our sacrifice. He's a high priest. But in the world at large, I wonder how many people, including those even in the Church of Christ, are used to thinking about Jesus as a king. I think the time we're most used to doing it is is what we did this morning. And I appreciate Jeremy uh, being adaptable because I asked him this morning, I said, You give us every king song that you've got, and he's delivered. Every song we've sung this morning so far has been about the kingship and the lordship of Jesus. And we sing about it all the time. We just sing, He's my King, and that's one that we're used to singing. But how often do we talk about the kingship of Jesus? We often talk about the kingdom, the kingdom of the church. But sometimes we don't make the mental connection that you can't have a kingdom without a king. I know that you're familiar with titles like Lord and Messiah and even the title of Christ, right? Not Jesus' last name, but the title of Christ. Each and every one of those names are within themselves pointing to the truth that Jesus is king. And when we use those titles, we're making a statement about who's really in charge. Someone might think this is a novel way about talking about Jesus. Uh, maybe this is something new in Christian circles or someone wrote a book about kingship. But it's really not a new idea at all. It's biblical. In fact, it's one of the most basic biblical ideas. Since the early days of Jesus' ministry, it's been clear that all roads led to a kingdom and a king. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. We're told that John the Baptist appears in the wilderness of Judea and note his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first message of the gospel in this time period that we hear out of the mouth of the prophet John says that there's a kingdom and it's coming and it's here. John's word to the people was that repentance was essential because things were about to change. The world was about to change. And so John came baptizing people in the Jordan River, preparing them for that kingdom. But it's interesting that once Jesus begins his ministry, the message did not change. Jesus came preaching what John preached. And in the next chapter, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, we see that Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The message from the beginning was all about the kingdom. In fact, 20, verse 23 of the same chapter, in Matthew 4, verse 23, it states that Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. I find that fascinating. We might call it the gospel of salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, but the Bible calls it the gospel of the kingdom, And I want you to remember that because it means that the concepts of gospel and kingdom are inseparably linked. They have something to do with each other. And there's a reason for that. The word gospel, as we understand it, is a Christian word. We have gospel music. You have gospel churches. And people have this word association, again, that gospel has something to do with Christianity. But the word gospel was not invented by Christians Jesus didn't coin that term. It was being used in the years before Jesus was even born. And it almost always carried with it the idea of a royal announcement. A runner would run from city to city after a decisive battle with a gospel of a new king. The gospel of Julius Caesar. The gospel of Alexander the Great. The gospel that a battle has been won and the tables have turned. Power has shifted hands. And so when Mark starts his book, his gospel, Mark 1-1, with the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he's making a statement about the kind of person that Jesus is. He's a conqueror. He's someone who's come to turn the world upside down, and he is, without a doubt, a king. And this is his gospel. For a world lost in sin and the clutches of evil... A conquering king, a new king, is great news. It's great news that someone's coming to fix things, they're coming to take charge, but it isn't good news for everybody. Not everybody wants to hear the gospel of a new king, especially the currently reigning king. The current king, who holds the authority at least in his mind at this point, doesn't want to hear the gospel of the new kingdom if that poses a threat to his throne, And so we aren't surprised that immediately upon the birth of Jesus, that he draws attention from those in power. We know in Matthew 2 that King Herod, he takes special interest when Jesus is born, when wise men from the east come to pay homage to him, so much so that when he realizes what's going on, he orders that all children two years and younger in Bethlehem be murdered. The king of this area ordered that his constituents, his Subjects, their children. It wasn't a foreign, you know, a foreign body's children. It wasn't children in another country. He said, Kill our kids. I cannot have this new king, this prophesied heir, coming and taking over the throne. Of course, God provided warning through an angel so that Jesus and his parents escaped. But that would not be the last time that Jesus' claim to authority, whether prophesied from his birth or later in life, would lead to confrontation with those who were not interested in any kind of change to the authority structure as it had been. You remember when Jesus came to Jerusalem, the city of David, he's the heir of David, he's the rightful king of Israel, and he exercised his power to cleanse the temple. We forget sometimes the Jesus that made a whip and went through whipping people and animals out of the temple to clean out his father's house of the merchandise tables. And afterward, we remember it was the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders over the temple in Mark eleven twenty eight, 28. They asked Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? The very presence of Jesus as a king was a nuisance, not only for political leaders, but also to the religious leaders. These men had made themselves kings of the people of Judah. They'd made themselves kings of the Jews, and they had taken post in the seat of Moses, and they could not accept it when God himself came and usurped them. But you know, we're not always all that different. We can point fingers and say, well, look at what Herod did. Well, look at what the scribes and the Pharisees did. But sometimes we like to believe that we're capable of self-governing, that we kind of have a good head on our shoulders and we kind of know what's best for ourselves and we can make our own decisions. And you might be different than me, but I don't really always like being told what to do. I guess I'm just a rebel at heart, right? I don't always like someone telling me, well, you ought to do this. Well, you need to do that. It's chafing to me in a way. And in our own way, we we might have a mind like those in the book of Judges in chapter 21, when it said, "In, in, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Do I have the ability to choose what's best for myself? Do I have the ability to do what I feel is right with impunity? Do I have that amount of wisdom within myself? Look at Jeremiah chapter 10 verse 23. There it says, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. When there is no absolute authority and men are left to themselves, we will always become kings of our own lives. We will choose what is best for us and what we feel suits us the best and not do what God wants us to do. And that is why you and I need to be under the authority of someone who is greater than us, who has all the wisdom and knowledge of the universe as we talked about in class this morning. What I'm telling you is you were made to be ruled and the king under which you should live is Jesus Christ. But it's one thing for a people with No king to try and lead themselves as in the book of Judges. It's another thing when a king is appointed, when he comes to his people invested with authority from God. In fact, he rides into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey to shouts of Hosanna to the son of David, something they would have only said to someone they thought was king. And then those same people a week later murder him. They reject him. They crucify him. The people of Jerusalem had heard the gospel of the kingdom. They saw the miracles. They knew that Jesus was a king of some sort. Their language betrays them in that. But he didn't end up being the king that they wanted. And so he was betrayed, put through a sham of a trial, and brought before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. It's interesting to note that when Jesus is brought before Pilate for judgment, the charge that is laid is one of treason And usurpation, that's a political charge. That's a political accusation. In Luke 23, verse 1 and 2, it says, Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him to Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Lie, lie. Saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Was that a lie? Was that a lie? with what they were claiming Jesus said. They said the crime committed by this Jesus of Nazareth was making himself a king. And we know that they were liars. We know that if Jesus was truly trying to create an uprising, if he was trying to turn people against Caesar, then he was going to join a crowd of other insurrectionists who had already done the exact same thing under Roman occupation and been cut down in their place. He wouldn't have been new. He wouldn't have been novel in that way. He never gathered an army with swords to try to take over Jerusalem. He didn't travel the land in a campaign rally to try to gain more followers. In fact, it was pretty much the opposite. He lost followers whenever he opened his mouth. But that doesn't answer a very important question. Did Jesus Christ consider himself a king? I can say that he's a king all day long and say, Jesus is king, Jesus is king. But I think you'll agree with me that what matters most is, did Jesus himself consider himself a king? What did he say about the matter? Look in John chapter 18. When it came time for Pilate to put Jesus on trial, the accusation fresh on his mind, he asked Jesus a simple question. Are you the king of the Jews? That was the accusation the Jews had brought. And I want you to imagine how odd this scene was was and and sometimes the Bible becomes so mythical to us we forget that this actually happened in real space and time in a real room where the governor of Judea Pontius Pilate standing and he's looking at this lowly Jewish man who had been awake all night who had sweat tears of blood and, and I'm sorry sweat blood not tears of blood and cried he didn't cry he was in the depths of agony the night before and he's been subjected to stress and grief beyond our imagination and beyond human limits and yet this governor of of Judea the Roman he looks at that man and says are you truly the king of the Jews look what Jesus says in verse 34 Jesus answered him are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me Pilate answered am I a Jew your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me what have you done Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Jesus is a man about to die. He's about to be crucified on a Roman cross for all people to see after being beaten and scourged within an inch of his life. But even in that position, the answer to Pilate's question is an emphatic yes. Jesus said, I have a kingdom and you say rightly that I am a king. And if Jesus says it, then that settles it. It must be true and in Matthew and Mark, Jesus responds to Pilate's question, are you the king of the Jews, by saying just simply, you have said it. You said it right. You've said it rightly on this day. And did you know that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, Paul refers to this exchange. He says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. What's Paul referring to there? The only confession I can think of is Jesus saying, you say rightly that I'm a king. And I've come to the world for this purpose, even though my kingdom is not like yours. Jesus showed that his kingdom was unlike the kingdoms of the world because his crown was made out of thorns. He was crucified under the true words, the king of the Jews. He was that and he was a lot more than that. I want you to understand this morning that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is unlike any other kingdom in the history of the world. It is not like any other monarchy. It isn't like any other democracy. It's different. But we cannot let that make us think that it's not a real kingdom. If you believe the kingdom of Jesus isn't a real kingdom, that he's not a real king because it's different than other kingdoms, then you've misunderstood totally. It is a real kingdom. He is a real king. He holds real power in the world. After Jesus went through the horror of the crucifixion, after he was glorified in his resurrection, he stood before the disciples on top of a mountain. And it almost puts us in the mindset of when Satan led Jesus up to the pinnacle, right? The high place in the holy city and told him to, to, if he would fall and worship the devil, then he would give all kingdoms and power to him right at that moment. But Jesus, in his righteous patience, would not grasp that power and authority early, but waited for God to give it to him. Never think that Jesus rejected power and authority, that he rejected all the kingdoms of the world. No, he wanted those, but he didn't take it early. Because in Matthew 28, verse 18, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What does it all mean? Well, The author of Hebrews gives us the definition of Jesus' power and authority in Hebrews 2, starting at verse 5. We sung a psalm about this the other night in the Sunday night sermon last week. It says, For he has not put the world to come, of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you take care of him? He goes on in verse 7. You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. Jesus's death was not a defeat, it was his crowning. It was his inauguration. It's when he came into the authority of all on earth and in heaven. We know that Jesus is a king because he said he was a king. We know that he has a kingdom because he said he had a kingdom. We know he has all power and authority because he said those things to us. And it's by that authority that he sends us out into the world to preach and to baptize the nations. The question is, if Jesus is king and he has all authority, then who can choose not to obey him without consequence? Who is outside of his rule. I've heard well-intentioned preachers make statements like, well, Jesus is only the king of your life if you make him the king of your life. I disagree. With all due respect, Jesus is king of your life whether you like it or not. In fact, it was during the first gospel sermon that Peter stood up and proclaimed in Acts 2 verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. You haven't made him Lord in Christ. Maybe you've made him Lord in Christ of your life. But Peter says in a real sense, God has made him Lord in Christ in this role. Now, the definition of those two words, Lord and Christ, are very important to our topic this morning. And they show us that Jesus' rule as king was for the Jews and the Gentiles. That's everybody, right? Every kind of person on the earth. If you're not a Jew, you're a Gentile. And Jesus is king of both, what does it mean that Jesus is both Lord and Christ? The Greek word Christos, which is what we get Christ from, would not have meant anything special to the Gentile world. But to the Jews, it meant everything. Because the word Christos means anointed one, christened one, chosen by God for a special purpose. In the Old Testament, the anointed ones were who? The kings, the priests, the priests. The prophets. These were the people anointed for the work of God. And so when Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stood before the Jewish people and said, God has made him Jesus Christos, the anointed one, they understood the weight of that statement. God has chosen Jesus as the new ruler of his people. The word Lord would have been much more notable to the Gentile world at large. The Greek word kyrios. Means one with power, Lord, Master. This is what servants called their slave holders. They called them Kyrios. They called them Lord. It was a term of reverence for someone whose authority was higher than your own. But perhaps the most interesting recipient of the title Kyrios was Caesar, the emperor himself. To say Kaiser, Kyrios, Caesar, Lord, was to make a statement about the authority structure. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is king. And he was to have an absolute authority over all the lands which Rome ruled. Caesar was thought to be descended from the gods. There were gospels written about the Caesars and how they were a deity in themselves and that they were worthy of praise and adoration because of the position that they held. And so if you thought of a king who was the Lord... If you're a Gentile, you probably think of Caesar before you think of Jesus. By the way, I want to note at this point that just because Jesus founded a kingdom, he did not intend or command that in the aftermath that all the kingdoms of the the earth should be dissolved. Jesus didn't say, because I'm king, there can be no other kingdoms. The New Testament goes in the opposite direction. The Apostle Peter wrote to Christians who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire and his marching orders for them in this new creation of God in in seeking God's will was in 1 Peter 2, verse 17. He said, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Honor the Caesar, an evil man in most cases, a man who practiced injustice against God's people but Peter says for your fear of God honor him and Paul says in Romans 13 shortly before the Roman authorities would literally behead him that the government is God's sword bearer and it punishes those who break the law of the land and hurt others and so I want you to remember that Jesus is not an anarchist Jesus does not say get rid of all earthly authority structures and power He's not a king who calls for the deposition of every earthly throne, but if all authority has been given to him and earthly governments have authority over their citizens, then where do they get that authority from? They get it from him. He's the source of all authority. He's the ultimate authority and all other loyalties, all other obedience to earthly rule must be done out of respect for him. And if those authorities transgress the law of God and tell us to sin against the true king, our allegiance is to him. We had rather serve God than men. Even if it leads to martyrdom and beatings and suffering, we do not need a permission slip to obey King Jesus. We always have the right to do that. You know, in the past, those in power understood this. Over the course of the last year and a half, the British monarchy has been in a time of transition. We know that Queen Elizabeth passed away in September of 2022 after a 70-year reign, and it was in the aftermath of her death, you know, lots of stories of her life and her rule were being shared on the internet, on social media, and I think my favorite one was a telegram sent by President Harry Truman to Elizabeth upon the death of her father, King George VI, In the letter, President Truman extended he and his wife's condolences to the new queen and her tragedy during the passing of her father. He noted that she'd received the news while she was abroad, and he was incredibly sorry for that. But it's the last paragraph that's my favorite of the whole telegram. I'm going to quote President Truman. We pray that the God of all comfort will sustain you and keep you, and that the King of kings under whose ruling hand all nations live, will give you fortitude and courage, strength and wisdom to fulfill the responsibilities thrust upon you. Did he hit the nail on the head? Square on the head. He said, we hope that the true king, the one who under all nations live, will give you the things that you need at this time. Nations have their sovereigns, their prime ministers, their presidents, their congresses, whatever you want to call it it's not just Britain, right? It's our country too. But all nations live under the ruling hand of the king of kings, King Jesus Christ. But there's a problem still because some rulers are not willing to rule under the authority of of Jesus. They, they think that there's, if there's an authority above them, then it weakens their grip on power. And that's why even though the kingdom of Jesus was not like other earthly kingdoms, it was not built to depose Caesar, trouble started almost immediately. It was in Acts 17 that Paul came and preached in Thessalonica. And Paul and Silas preached the Jews in that city, and some were converted, but it was not long before the antagonistic Jews, Paul's enemies, started this mob in an attempt to incite uproar in the city against Paul's preaching. And when they couldn't find him, they took some of the Christians in a house and dragged them before the rulers of the city. And as we read earlier, it says, When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Note that Christians were not causing trouble in the traditional sense. They weren't lighting houses on fire. They weren't causing mobs and hurting people. That was the enemies of the Christians that were doing that. But the Jews say that the Christians speak of another king, Jesus. And Caesar can be lord, he can be king and emperor, but as long as King Jesus reigns, there is always someone above him that he has to answer to. And so imagine the conflict, imagine the tension that arose on the streets of Rome when you had Christians saying that Jesus Christ was the true Lord. And who was this Jesus? He was a lowly Jew that the Roman government themselves had executed. And people are saying that he's the true king, even above Caesar. As time moved on, the empire would become more antagonistic to the church I'm told, and as you study, you see that they would bring Christians before a statue, an idol of Caesar himself. And as I understand it, it had a small bowl of fire on it. And they were handed some incense. And they were told, throw it into the fire and pronounce Kaiser Kyrios. Caesar is Lord. What do you think they did? I'm sure some listened. I'm sure some turned their back on the faith. But we know that a vast majority of them, our brothers and sisters, simply said, Jesus is Lord. I will not worship Caesar. They were beheaded. They were sawn in two. They were thrown to lions. They lost their lives to gain them out of loyalty to King Jesus. Jesus Christ is not a tyrant. We do not convert people with the sword. We don't baptize people at gunpoint. Jesus will not conscript anyone to be in his kingdom against their will. He simply puts forth the invitation but know this, every person on the earth will be judged by his rule and authority, whether they know it or not, and whether they like it or not. No one is exempt. And on that day, only one kingdom will stand. No national flags are going to be ushered into heaven. There will be no more dual citizenship. We will either be citizens of heaven under our king, Jesus, or we will be lost forever. Romans 14 and verse 10 But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. Paul puts it even more clearly in Philippians chapter 2 when he says that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You live under a monarchy you live under the rule of a king that will never die he will never be up for re-election he will always hold his throne he is the prince of peace he is love incarnate he is gentle and lowly in heart but make no mistake you will bow in reverence to king jesus you will say with your tongue that jesus christ is lord the question is will you do it now by choice Or at the end of time, will you do it out of force? Sometimes we need a picture to understand the nature of truth. And I think our picture of Jesus a lot of times is one of peace, is one of good nature, uh, someone that we could hang out with, someone we could eat with. But I think sometimes we need a picture of the judgment of King Jesus. I think we get a good one in Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 11, we see a picture of Jesus as king in judgment. It says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes wars. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God." And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, but he's the Lion of Judah as well. He is a king who on the last day will exercise his power and put each and every one of his enemies to eternal death. Paul said in Romans 8 that if God is for us, then no one can be against us. But what if we stand against this king? What hope is left for us then? It doesn't matter who is on our side. If Jesus, if King Jesus is on the other side, we'll lose every time. I'd like to give you two thoughts, then the lesson will be yours. First, as our king, we must give Jesus the respect that he is due. If the president walked into the room at certain times, I think we would have to give a certain level of honor. If a dignitary walked into the room, someone of affluence, we would give a certain level of honor as is bestowed upon the role of office. Do we give Jesus that respect? In the past, I have been myself guilty of having a sort of transactional relationship with Jesus. I knew I needed Jesus to forgive my sins, and so I was willing to do A, B, or C to make that happen, to get what he had to give me. I did my part, I was baptized, I came to church, I did all the basic elements of Christian life, and I expected in turn for Jesus to do his part. He had something I needed, and I did what was necessary to get it. And I think we all fall into seasons of life... Where this happens, we get into a rut, and we kind of think of our salvation with Jesus as a means to an end. We want to go to heaven, and so Jesus is the way we do that, and we don't give it much more thought. Maybe we turn to the Gospels for an encouraging word or two. Maybe we pray every so often when someone's sick, but it doesn't really go beyond that. We aren't fully interested in giving ourselves over to his will. Let me be blunt. Jesus Christ is not looking to be your Buddy. Jesus Christ is not looking to be your life partner. He is your friend. That's true. He is a gentle shepherd at times, but most importantly, Jesus Christ is your Lord and King. And too often we act like his words are nice suggestions. I'm not talking about not having a piano. I'm not talking about worshiping correctly. I think we have that down. I'm talking in the day to day life, Monday through Saturday. We don't act like he's a king. We act like he gives us good advice for optional things if we have the time. Jesus says, I am your king. Make time. Make time to do what I've commanded you. Didn't Jesus say at some point, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple? He didn't say, we'll be a bad disciple. He didn't say, we we'll won't have much success as a disciple. He said, he can't be my disciple. If someone's not a disciple, they're not going to follow Jesus into heaven. Have you counted the cost as a Christian? Do you realize that you live under a king who demands your time and respect? Your money? Your hours? The way that you spend your days? Your family activities? Your entertainment choices? I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just telling you, you'll either bow the knee now or later. Count the cost in your life. Then finally, in the same passage where Jesus said that he had all authority, he commanded his disciples to take the gospel, his gospel, throughout the world, to teach those who did not know Jesus, and let them know that they will be judged by the new reigning king. The people in your life should see that Jesus is king, should see your allegiance to him first, through your actions. You've heard people say the best sermon ever preached is the life well lived. That's true. But we're living in bad times right now. Things aren't easy out there. Every day on the news and on the radio, we hear about the things going on. Actions well lived are great. I think it's time to start using our mouth. I think we're going to have to start telling people with words that they live under a monarchy and that we all do. And we should tell them that they can serve a good king. he's, He's the greatest king you could ever serve. He wants to give you more than anyone else ever could. And we can choose him now and we can reign alongside of him in glory for all of eternity. But if we don't, we face certain damnation and destruction. You, me, and everyone that we come into contact with. So the choice is theirs. And it's ours this morning. Will Jesus be our king? Will we respect him? Will we honor him? Will we serve him? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've put in a lot of work to be here on a day that wasn't easy to get here. But if you're not in the kingdom, if you haven't been baptized into Christ, then it's all for naught. No amount of snowy church days will get you into the gates of heaven. Only in Christ can you be pure and undefiled. And this morning, if you're not in Christ, we beg you, Be baptized into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. But I think that most of us this morning here are Christians. We do live under a king and Lord. We've confessed him to be such. How are we doing? Are we living like Jesus is king? Or are we our own king? Do we make our own decisions? Do we spend our time focused on ourselves?